welcome to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. Several states have passed laws that forbid discrimination based on hair texture and hairstyles. This particularly impacts black people, especially black women and girls, in schools and workplaces, which ban hairstyles such as locks, braids and twists. A new documentary, Back to Natural, looks at the way that race, identity and hair are all related. The film was directed by our guest, New York City-based clinical psychologist Gillian Scott Ward, who was inspired by the work she was doing in her clinical practice and her own drive to go natural. From Free Speech TV, Just Solutions. back to your own experience in life, your own experience with hair that led you to want to get involved with this film and create this documentary, Back to Natural. What were you experiencing? Wow. You know, I had chemically straightened hair for as long as I can remember. You know, I don't know if it was six or seven, but it was very early on. My mom um, chemically straightened my hair. I've asked her before, you know, what, what led her to that? And she said it was the style and, and uh, it definitely was the style. Um, And so it was not something that I thought about. It was just a, a, a ritual of using these chemical straighteners in my hair every four to six weeks. Frequently it was painful. Um, it was an upsetting process, but it was a process that um, was normal for me and that I never really questioned uh, until later on in my life. And that questioning led to the development of this documentary, Back to Natural, which really looks at internationally to understand why it is that uh, Black people have the relationship we have with our hair and why people from outside of our cultural group have a lot of thoughts, feelings, biases about our hair and how that affects our communities. Well, the film takes us from the US to Paris, France, and then Cape Town, South Africa. And I definitely want to talk about the universality of the experience that Black people are dealing with around Black hair. But, you know, you mentioned there the chemical straighteners. I mean, these have been proven to have carcinogens, to be exposing uh, people who are using them to all kinds of health issues. So, I mean, this gets back to people's self a sense of self, but also the actual health implications of how black hair has uh, been forced by society, by white supremacist attitudes to to change. Talk a little bit about that, because it's not just a a hairstyle. We're talking about people's health. We're talking about people's experience in the workplace and education. There's so many layers to this. There's so many layers. Uh, You know, where do we start? The Environmental Working Group did a study uh, several years ago that showed Black people, Black women particularly, spend nine times the amount of money on uh, hair products to be in alignment with basically values uh, of beauty and uh, acceptability that center uh, the white body. So we spend nine times the amount of money on these products, which means that we are exponentially exposed to uh, chemicals, endocrine disrupting hormones, which can lead to things like premature birth or low birth weight. So that means that black people are impacted by this even before we're born, 
even in utero. It's, it's you're right, it has been linked to, to cancers, has been linked to um, obesogens, uh, which, which means that things that impact our, our weight and our home hormone systems. So just on a, a financial and a physical health level, before we even get to psychological, there are huge impacts um, uh, for guidelines, grooming standards, or just expectations that aren't in alignment with our natural hair and our natural bodies. There are at least a couple of folk in the documentary that talk very explicitly about these Eurocentric standards of beauty and how they were, and this a man and a woman actually, it was really interesting to hear both their perspectives. The woman said that when she was growing up, she felt she had to change her hair to be attractive. Mm. And the man was saying, well, I think because he was socialized mostly around, you know, white young men, he felt that only women who and girls who had this type of straight hair that that was the standard of beauty that he was supposed to be attracted to so this goes back to very very young ages you mentioned there your experience of being a child but this idea of the eurocentric standards of beauty and how that has impacted the black community men and women talk a little bit about that because it seems like it's it's very very damaging I mean, it's, it's damaging and it's damaging, I think, at every stage of life. You know, when we think about young children who are in kindergarten being um, seen through a lens of fear of the black body. So what, what do I mean by this? I mean that a lot of school teachers, um, you know, regardless of their warm and loving intentions about being teachers, hold these unconscious negative beliefs and biases associated with natural hair. Therefore, we're seeing things like kindergartners getting kicked out of school because their hairstyles, having two Afro puffs, because that's what our, our hair does when we put our uh, hair in ponytails, um, are being seen through the lens of, oh, it's a gang hairstyle. And these are children, you know, and this is happening all throughout the lifespan when people try to get um, employment and they have styles that are appropriate for our hair texture, like braids or locks or afros, right? These kinds of styles are important because they were made to protect our kinky hair, um, but again, are being seen through the lens of whiteness and white standards is what's appropriate and everything else is deviant. And so I really wanna talk about how empowering it is for people across races and across cultures to really question and understand how these viewpoints are related to history are related to psychology and that these biases can be unlearned and really it harms everyone, right? If you can't see someone's authenticity, what they bring to the interaction you're having because you're clouded by a lens of bias that was learned because of the culture that makes it very hard to sort of have a lived experience where you can learn from different people. Um, so I think it's important for all of us to really begin to question these things that, that we've learned and that we've grown up and that we just assume is normal. Well, let's talk a little bit about the history of this, because I know in, in the film we see how 
the uh, in the 1960s in the civil rights movement, there really was that embrace of natural hair. In fact, Malcolm X asked people to question, who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? We see these beautiful images, you know, from that era. But but what is the history of this and how black hair had come to be policed? and politicized and and bringing that up to where we are right now where we're seeing legislation being passed in different states there's uh, some federal legislation as well that we'll talk about but but the history of this how did we get to this point well the thing the first thing to know is that the history um, of uh, you know african descendants relationship with their hair globally has been one of strength and spiritual connection Right. So our hair is so meaningful. Every style historically has meant something different. So a style may um, let people around you know what role you have in the community. If you're married, if you're a child, uh, if you're the healer of the community, um, what what status you have. And so that was really important. I hear hair for a lot of um, African centered cultures um, and belief groups is connected to uh, our, our spirit, our spiritual world, our connection to our ancestors. And so really our relationship with hair is based on identity and strength. You know, hair is a venue through empowerment. And unfortunately, what we have seen was when, you know, you had to convince the masses that Black people deserve to be treated um, like animals, basically, um, to be um, enslaved, you had to convince people that who Black people were was not human um, and was inferior. And so in order to do that, they had to make up lies. They had to make up things like that our hair was um, unworthy or not good enough or not beautiful. Uh, and so it was, it was these kinds of untruths that began to spread around communities globally. And this is what we are trying to address now is kind of going back to people being able to see our hair as part of our identity uh, and, and part of our strength and allowing other cultures to understand the meaning of that as well. Well, you talk there about how this is really a global issue. And in your documentary, Back to Natural, you take us to France, you take us to Paris. You have a, an interview there with a, a salon um, a hairstylist in Paris talking about people who want to come in and, and have uh, requesting these hairstyles because of actually social media that has really opened the door for, for people to embrace natural hair. But then you take us to Cape Town, South Africa. So talk a little bit about the global, uh, the universality of, of this experience about black hair. What did you find out in France and in South Africa? I was, um, I probably naively shocked about how similar people's experiences were, regardless of where, you know, they are in the world. Um, uh, you know, it's it's hard to know where to, to start, but I think touching down in, in South Africa, this is the first time I had been on the African continent. I was so excited um, to see what that experience was like. And one of the first thing I noticed when I got out of the plane is that people were um, giving me looks of disapproval because I had natural hair. And so that was really shocking to me that even on the continent, there uh, are in some places, some remnants of the, the colonial ideals and mentality that can look down on natural hair. And then, you know, 
France, maybe it wasn't as surprising because it's it's Europe. But I think the most surprising thing to me was when we found out that in styling school, in the school where you learn to do hair in the textbook, and you'll see this in the film, in the textbook, they say that this kind of hair um, is the result of a disease. So that's what we're teaching, uh, you know, stylists. And in African descendant communities, the stylist oftentimes has a spiritual role, is one of the most imp important people in the community. So having, you know, potentially one of the, uh, an important person in the community interact with your hair in a way that's inferior is, um, is an incredibly uh, worrisome and, and and troubling. And so I know that, especially in France, people are saying, you know, this, this really has to stop. We need to, we need to educate people so that they, they understand that this is, this is actually really beautiful and it's just different. You are listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. Our guest today is clinical psychologist Gillian Scott Ward, director of the documentary Back to Natural, which looks at the politics of black hair and how race identity and hair are all related. You can find out more at backtonaturalduck.com and find out more about us at freespeech.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the Just Solutions podcast so you never miss an episode. Well, this goes far beyond, you know, everything we're talking about in terms of how society makes people feel about their hair. There are very real legal issues about this. And we mentioned there are legislation laws being passed in different states. I think California back in 2019 was the first state to pass what are broadly being referred to as the Crown Act. And that refers to creating a respectful and open world for natural hair act. Several other states, including Colorado and several Western states, have subsequently passed legislation, including New York. But there is an effort at a federal level to have this passed. It was passed by the House back in March um, and needs to go to the Senate. Tell us about these laws and, and the need for them, because there are very real issues in terms of discrimination, people, and it's usually black women because they're at the, the intersection of, of racism and sexism, but usually black women in the workplace are being told that they can't advance in their careers, being denied jobs, being uh, sent home from work and told to change their hairstyles. So there are very real needs to have these pieces of legislation. What is happening that we need to pass the Crown Act? Right. Well, this is really important because, and this is one of the very many issues about bodily autonomy. And so when I was doing this film, one of the things I couldn't really understand was why was this legal? Why was it okay for uh, people to be discriminated against because of their hair? So I spoke to a lot of lawyers and what I had realized was that um, there's something called an immutable characteristic. So what this means is if this is something that you can change by law, your employer, your school, they can ask you to change it. So when it comes to race, your skin color, they can't ask you to change. So they can't discriminate uh, against you because of that. But because I think there's a lot of lack of knowledge about what it takes to actually change this texture into a straight hair texture, the law says you can just change your hair. So we can ask you to do so. 
So what these laws or these guidelines uh, allow for is to say that the texture of our hair is instricably connected to our race and therefore you can't ask someone to change it. Um, and so that's why it's really important that we are connecting the texture of our hair and hairstyles that support the health and beauty of that texture is connected to race, therefore um, would be uh, racial discrimination to discriminate against hair. And so that's really, really powerful. I think that's going to um, enable people to uh, sit down and really think about how to make their schools compliant, how to make their organizations compliant. And then with that, sort of uh, allowing people to have, you know, workshops or educational experiences where they can begin to unpack, understand their bias and have a real culture change. It's one thing to change laws, but it's it's another task, I think, to change attitudes. And, and a lot of the barriers are that it is in professional uh, circles, there are dress codes in place that often discriminate specifically around black hairstyles. And so how, how much do we need to have more representation with natural hairstyles so that folks can see that this is something that, that is out there? I mean, talk a little bit about that, the need to have increased representation, because we also need to change attitudes. I mean, if we can change laws, we, we still need to change attitudes where people feel that they can wear natural hairstyles. Yeah, we absolutely need to have people understand um what natural hair is. You know, I think a lot of people associate uh, naturally textured hair with taking a particular stand. Um, I think that it could be um, scary or overwhelming for people. Um, and and so we just need some education uh, around that. We And one of the things that I've been doing with the film is doing healing workshops. And so that's healing workshops across uh, racial ethnic group and help people understanding what they learned growing up about their natural hair, asking them to compassionately reflect on what their bodies do when they see natural hair. I remember asking um, someone once, you know, really tune into your body what happens when you when you see my natural hair? And their authentic response was that my heart races. Um, I feel shortness of breath. And so what they realized was that there was a fear response. You know, that's what they had learned to have a fear response. And so we need to help people understand that. One, how do you respond when you see people of color? Tune into your body and begin to question that. Right. Begin to breathe, begin to ground yourself and understand that that is part of where the healing also comes from, is beginning to understand your automatic reactions uh, and learning how to respond uh, really differently, exposing yourself to different types of hair types. So it, it's normal uh, and it's not uh, something that you only see sometimes. I really encourage people to look on their social media feeds. What do you see in terms of hair texture or skin type or body type on your social media feed? Um, think about ways to reprogram your mind. Uh, and that is one of the very many ways that we can work on healing um, all of our challenges with natural hair. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the impact and what you have seen, particularly 
when we are having children, you mentioned there, you know, kindergartners being sent home because their hairstyle isn't deemed to be appropriate or is in violation of a school dress code. When children are growing up hearing that message, when children are growing up having their hair touched by strangers because they're somehow seen as being you know, exotic or other, it's a dehumanizing thing. But then when they're seeing these images of other children, you know, experiencing this of student athletes being discriminated against, having to have their their locks cut off. We, we've all seen the stories reported on that. You know, the young wrestlers, the the children who are being told that you have to change your hair to be able to to compete in these sports. What is the impact on young people when they're seeing these messages and experiencing it directly themselves? You know, I want to go back to the 1950s. I know it seems a long time, but in the 1950s, we had a, a case called a Brown versus Board of Education uh, in the Supreme Court. And um, Thurgood Marshall used some research by two psychologists, Kenneth and Mamie Clark, and they did a test called the doll test. And so they gave black children two dolls. One was black and one was white. And they asked them questions, you know, which doll is the beautiful doll? Which doll is the good doll? Which doll is the bad doll? And what they found at that time was that Black children associated the more negative words with the Black doll and the more positive words with the white doll. And so what Thurgood Marshall did was use that research from Kenneth and maybe Clark with the with the doll test to say that segregation inherently told black children that they were inferior. And that sense of inferiority would live within them forever and negatively impact them. And because of that, the Supreme Court decided that there could no longer be school segregation. So the question I have now was if that case was tried in the 1950s, how is it different now to tell black children that they can't participate in school because their hair is inferior. Is that not the same message? Does that not lead children to to carry around that same sense of inferiority that could um, impact them for their lifetime? But I want to think about ways that we can actually change this. You know, the this, this show is called Just Solutions. And I just enrolled my daughter, uh, who's two, into preschool. And one of the reasons I chose for preschool was because they have um, uh, two activities that I thought was amazing. One was an activity about hair type. So you have these two, three, four, and five-year-olds doing a, an activity learning about all different types of hair. How beautiful at such a young age to teach them that. Uh, they have a, an activity about uh, hair color, uh, skin tone that they do four times a year at different seasons. And they make, they match uh, the color of their, their skin by mixing different foods, just to show how your skin might change for season and, and, and by the seasons. And so how we normalize uh, hair texture differences or skin tone differences is so important and, and starting young, because what we know is that children across races and ethnic groups do better when they have more multicultural viewpoints when they understand that there are different people with different experiences and become curious about what life might be like in different, um, uh, in different bodies. Uh, and, and that's so important for their own identity because they can accept the differences that they 
themselves inhabit from the people around them. And then we can really set a strong foundation of figuring out how to live authentically as opposed to how to look for others to decide how we should be. That's a beautiful story that you just shared. And it is very heartening to hear that there are schools that are using these kind of activities to talk about multiculturalism at the very youngest age for kids. But the sad reality is in many schools around the country, we're seeing a reduction in discussion around multiculturalism because of what has happened, this far right takeover of school boards, this hijacking of the discussion of how to talk about differences and race in schools that has led to what we're seeing play out where they're framing it as critical race theory, but really what's happening is a discussion of how people are different. That is essentially being banned. So in the last few minutes that we have, Gillian, what can viewers do, particularly if they're in a state that hasn't passed, say the Crown Act, or maybe they're in a state where we're seeing these attacks on uh, cultural differences being discussed in a school setting? What can people do to educate themselves, but also to take action to make change in their communities? You know, any opportunity to um, discuss the benefits that we all get from allowing space and room for people with differences, I think is really important. Um, so, you know, I love studies. So so providing studies to your school board, I really I really do think that that's really difficult um, to to not pay attention to that actually um, being able to think critically and take uh, it's called a perspective shift is actually better for all of our mental health and our development. You know, it's not good on the physical body if every time you experience someone different or see someone different, you go into a high alert stress response. Right. That's encouraging people to live in a fear state to live in a panic state. Um, I think that's why you also see this proliferation of guns because we've become very afraid of each other, afraid of difference. And so we um, become hyper vigilant about our safety. And I think we take extreme measures um, to be safe uh, in ways that um, actually don't make sense and make us less safe. So I think having people really understand that um, it actually makes us healthier human beings, more balanced human beings, when we allow ourselves to understand that difference is not scary um, and that difference uh, helps us function in the world. Now, the documentary has had public screenings uh, all really around the country. And as you said there, that you're also following up with these discussion groups to have people examine their own personal attitudes. So what reaction have you had to the film? You know, we've been doing um, healing workshops with our screenings really internationally. And the reactions are, are strong. I'll say strong on a lot of different sides. I mean, I think it's really powerful to have people have emotional breakthroughs where they can, again, compassionately understand their experience with hair, understand um, how their family histories played a part into either the relationship with their own hair or how they respond um, to the natural hair of other people. One of the things I do is I teach uh, body-based skills um, to help people learn how to manage their stress response so they can be grounded when they come across uh, pe people who are different or experiences are different, which I think is really, really uh, important. I think everybody uh, could benefit from practicing um, some of that. And it's just really an opportunity to ask 
themselves, ask ourselves, what does it mean to be authentic? What does it mean to live in alignment? And what are ways that I can help myself do that and the people around me? Because it makes our society and community better. Well, Gillian Scott Ward, it has been so great to have you as a guest on Just Solutions. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. Our guest, Dr. Gillian Scott Ward, is the director of the new documentary Back to Natural. You can find out more at backtonaturaldoc.com. And you can watch it on Free Speech TV, find out more about that and find out more about Just Solutions at our website, freespeech.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. For Just Solutions, I'm Maeve Conran.